actually, there was a point when I just thought, you know what? I'm not making much money, but I'm making a little bit and I really want to give this a go. And I'm just going to let go of anxiety and trust that I feel like this is the right place that I'm supposed to be doing this and that this is going to work out. And I thought, oh, good. These people will actually never be my competitor because they were actually positioned in a way that they could have become a competitor. But if you're not going to put basic technology in place and kind of level up, then you're never going to go big. Yeah. Okay. So another really hard country I would say is... My name is Nicole Sahin. I'm the CEO and founder of Globalization Partners. I live in Boston, Massachusetts, and I'm 39 years old. Globalization Partners is a company that helps other companies expand internationally without those companies having to deal with any of the HR, legal, or tax issues that are usually associated with international expansion. So what we do is whenever a company wants to hire an employee in the UK or Germany or the UAE or Brazil or any of 150 countries, we put the client identifies on our payroll in that country. And the reason that's helpful is because we can employ the person on behalf of the client. The person works for the client for all intents and purposes, but legally we take care of all the legal obligations on the back end. So are you a lawyer? I am not a lawyer, but my legal team has designated me as an honorary lawyer. I can hang out with them. Because it sounds like you're taking care of a lot of the legality part of it. Is that what's going on? Or are you also kind of like a headhunter? I'm just trying to make sure we understand totally what your company does. That's great. I mean, we don't do the recruiting. So the clients identify who they want to employ in another country. And it's basically a global legal platform. So we have our global legal platform set up so that the clients don't have to set up their own. Could you give us like a real world example to why someone would actually use you guys? Okay. So one of our favorite clients was a super high growth company and they had spun out of eBay and they wanted to use our platform to hire salespeople around the globe. And they hired people in about 20 different countries. They never had to set up a foreign subsidiary or a branch office in another country, never had to figure out how to run payroll in another country, never had to deal with any of employment contract issues associated with hiring in another country. And basically, they were able to hire salespeople in 20 countries. And typically, we can onboard people in any country within a few business days of the client finding the right candidate that they want to hire. So they were able to really ramp up their global sales team very quickly and effectively without dealing with a lot of international tax, legal, HR, infrastructure issues that companies usually have to deal with. Do you have to be like a significant size company to use globalization partners? Yeah. I mean, usually our clients are fairly large companies, but I would say they're usually between about 50 million a year in revenue and up to a couple billion dollars a year in revenue. So it's usually any high growth company that wants to hire people in other countries. Any other examples that we could use other than that? It seems like it makes sense. It's more dealing with the taxes in a bigger country because I know online, if you're a smaller business, you might hire some freelancers through a freelancer site, maybe not worry about it as much. But I could see how once you get to multiple countries and out of the US, how this kind of could be an issue. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think most of our clients are like bigger companies or tech companies. So they're kind of past the point of using freelancers. So freelancers are great for entrepreneurs or founder run companies. But at the point where a company is big enough that they're eventually going to have an exit, they have to be more careful about following the laws of different countries and they want full-time dedicated employees. So another example would be Gosh, there's a lot. So we've had clients who have software engineer in the Silicon Valley who decides she needs to move home to India, for example, and they want to be closer to their family. But the company doesn't want to let go of that person and decides, okay, we'll keep this person on the payroll, but they want to work from home now, their home country. 
And anytime you have a full-time employee in another country, you have to follow the employment laws of that country. And sometimes you also have to follow the corporate laws in that country. So you can't just hire people anywhere without paying payroll and corporate taxes and following the employment laws in another country. So that's an example of when a company would come to use our services. How do you guys get paid and make money? We charge a markup on top of the total cost of employment. Whatever our clients want to pay their employees, we pay that out to the employees around the globe, and then we add a markup on top of the employee payroll. How big is your company today? Are y'all located in Boston? I imagine not if this is what you actually do. Right. We're about 120 people today, growing as fast as we can. I think we'll be more than 200 people by the end of the year. And we have people in 40 countries right now, internal employees in 40 countries. And we provide services in 150 countries. Did you ever think you'd be at this point in your life at the age of 39? You know, it's really funny that you asked that because my team says that they remember me telling them we're going to be this big. But I don't remember it. It's kind of funny. I can't say I envisioned this exactly, but I'm really excited about it. And the best part is, is that I know in the future that five years from now, we'll have 50,000 people on our payroll globally. And I'm just really excited about the potential and the reach of the business. For me, what inspires me is the idea that we can help anybody hire anyone anywhere. And I think that we're in a generation or an era when the world is globalizing really quickly. And it's exciting to me that Someone who works in California can easily work with somebody in Saudi Arabia or Brazil. And with video conferencing, that person is a member of their team. They're able to see and work with that person every day. And the world continues to just get smaller and smaller. And as it does, we learn so much more about each other's people. Right. So I think that's really exciting to play a role in contributing to the acceleration of that. I definitely agree with you. It's like kind of cool just even seeing over the last 10, 15 years, how much more you can communicate with someone on the opposite side of the world. I could see your excitement for going forward that you just think that we'll be more interconnected and hopefully grow through your company, right? Mm -hmm. Did you just dream about starting Globalization Partners as a teenager or how did you decide to get started with this thing? So going way back to the early days, I think I've always been an internationalist and I studied abroad when I was an undergraduate in college, like many people do. And my study abroad program took me to about 10 or 12 countries in the course of 100 days. It was amazing. And after I had that experience, I'm from the Midwest originally, and my family traveled on vacation. We would go on like a cruise or to Florida or something like that to go to the beach, but never really traveled in terms of seeing a lot of different countries and cultures. But after I did that as an undergraduate student, I just loved meeting people from everywhere. And that was something I was really passionate about. So after that, I started traveling a lot and working after school jobs and in the summer and things like that and just saving up as much money as I could to go buy a plane ticket and would travel quite a bit. And I ended up traveling to more than 50 countries. I don't remember how old I was, but by the time I was like 21 or 22. Wow. And I thought I wanted to be an anthropologist after college. And in order to get into graduate school, I did kind of like a pre-study with a group. I was living in the Northern Highlands of Guatemala with an indigenous family for a period of time that's really known for maintaining their traditional mom culture and mom being a remnants of the Mayan civilization. And so I was living with these people and getting to know their culture and enjoying living in the Northern Highlands of Guatemala. But when I say enjoying, I liked it, but I wasn't sure I loved it. And I had one of those moments where I just realized that the idea of being an anthropologist was really glamorous. 
when you're reading National Geographic, but not so glamorous when you're living in a developing country and trying to learn a language that nobody's ever heard of and decided to come out of the mountains and go be an entrepreneur. What year was that when you made that decision? That was right after 9-11 happened. So that must have been 2001 or 2003. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You're coming out of the mountains. It seems like you're well-traveled. I'm assuming you didn't have much money when you got started, right? Right. Not at all. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was saying. Just based on traveling, you said saving up for tickets. So yeah, tell us from Guatemala where you end up going and how you actually ended up starting your company. So from Guatemala, I went back home right away. I actually tried to figure out like if I could just travel around for a little bit in Guatemala, but Central America at that time was a pretty dangerous place. And I definitely was a little sketched out about that. It was seven years after the civil war ended in Guatemala and it had been a 30 year civil war. It was just a difficult time for a young woman to travel by herself and pretty dangerous to be in Central America. And like you said, I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't think it was very safe to rely on myself if I was traveling alone. So I came back to St. Louis, but it was right after 9-11 and nobody was hiring. And just for any young listeners out there, I mean, I don't think the economy is bad now, but I think there's this period of time when you go through your life where you think, gosh, I know what I want to do, but I don't know how to get from here to there, or you can't find the right job. And in my experience, sometimes it's meant to not be that way. You're meant to go through those hard times and ultimately land exactly where you're supposed to. But anyway, since it was right after 9-11 and there really were no jobs, I was basically just teaching yoga and tending bar. And after doing that for about six months, I thought, my God, if this is all I'm going to do with my life, because I was quite disappointed in myself after finishing college that that was all I was doing, I thought I'll go do this in the Caribbean. So I moved to the Caribbean and set up a small business there, which was bringing retreat leaders down into the Caribbean islands and like taking advantage of unused resort facilities. So yoga teachers would bring their guests and we'd have host yoga retreats. And a lot of people do that now, but at the time it was pretty novel concept. That was at the time when yoga was just becoming more well-known in the U.S. as like exercise. Over the past 70 years, there's been a dramatic shift towards single-use plastics in our society. In the beginning, it was an incredibly promising technology that opened possibilities beyond our imagination. Then, it became trash. We now produce 300 million tons of plastic every year. We have developed a disposable lifestyle. We now face the incredible damage we have inflicted on our environment. One reason for hope is the extraordinary nature of human intellectual accomplishment. Creative ways of recycling and reusing reduces demand for production of new plastics. At Allmade, we're committed to only using recycled polyester in our triblets. On average, each shirt prevents six plastic bottles from ending up in landfills or the ocean. Allmade is dedicated to finding new and innovative ways to reduce our demand. Will you? If you're looking for more information about Allmade, be sure to tune in to episode 131, where I interview the founder, Ryan Moore. It was 2001 to 2003, as you're saying, when you're actually doing that. Much harder to see what it looked like down there versus if you're on Instagram or whatever. I feel like it's much easier to get an idea of where you're going and stuff. You'd actually have to get on the computer and the yoga trend wasn't hot back then. Yeah. So anyway, that was fun and I enjoyed doing that, but I learned something about myself. What'd you learn? I learned that I'm an entrepreneur at heart. Like I love to build things and I'm pretty creative and was good at getting things done. But what I realized also, there were two things that I learned on the flip side. I learned that I didn't want to live in the Caribbean forever, that as a 22 or 23 year old living in the Caribbean, it sounds like a dream. And it probably is if you're 60 and calm down, but I'm not a very calm down person. I'm more of a plug into life person. And so living in the Caribbean just wasn't the right fit for me. 
I wanted to be in more of a city that felt like things are moving and things are happening. And then second, I really had no idea how to run a business. I was good at running programs and getting clients, but in terms of filing tax returns and dealing with the administrative things behind running a business, I wasn't very good at that. I didn't really know what to do. So after running this as a small business for a couple of years and just kind of realizing I really needed to learn more about how to run a business, I decided to go to the Monterey Institute of International Studies and get an MBA. So I was in California and I did that for two years and absolutely loved it. And when I finished my MBA program, I signed on with a consulting firm. And at that time, it was a man and a dream. And this man, my mentor, wanted to help companies expand internationally. And he set up a consulting firm. And I was the fifth employee of that firm. And we would help companies if Tesla or Harvard or any company called and said, I want to hire an employee in China or an employee in Brazil or whatever. We would say, okay, we can certainly help you. In order to hire this person in Brazil or China, you have to set up a company first. And in order to set up a company, it's going to take $100,000 in a year, but we'll work with our legal team and our accountants in country and set up the entity for you. And then we'll help you deal with the tax issues. We'll help you set up payroll and we'll help you set up a locally compliant employment contract and deal with all of these things in that country. Then you can hire that person a year from now. And after doing that, the company grew like crazy. We were very popular and we grew from five people to 200 in the course of six years and built a great business. The company name was High Street Partners. Similarly, again, I think you learn as you go. And for me, what I learned is that first of all, every time a company wants to hire one employee in another country, the idea that they have to set up a whole company and deal with all these labor and HR issues, advising them and guiding them through it was helpful. But I thought if I could just set up one company in every country and give all my clients access to it, I would have a much more scalable business model and my clients would be a heck of a lot happier. So was that what you were doing? Because that's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, okay, she must end up making a company in Brazil and throwing 10 companies from the US into it. And it'd be way cheaper too, it seemed like. Right. Yes. That's what my new business is. That's Globalization Partners. So for example, our company in Brazil probably has, I don't know, employees of representing a hundred different clients in Brazil. At your old company, High Street Partners, you weren't doing that quite yet. And you saw, hey, you know, if I did that, it'd be much more economical and I could probably get a better ROI for these people and not charge them as much. Exactly. Yeah. See, I should have been there with you. <laughs> Where were you at this time in San Francisco? Yeah, in the Bay Area and also in San Diego. So you did that for five or six years. And can you tell us what else led to that growth internally? Like we kind of found out what you figured out with setting up these companies, but why was High Street Partners at the time able to grow so much? Were y'all doing good stuff with SEO? Were you getting written about? Were there competition? Just tell us a little bit more about that. First of all, yeah, I really learned how to build a high growth company. But the reason that what we were doing had gained such great market traction is really just the trends of the time. So if that was 2005, that was shortly during the recovery from the dot-com crash. And everybody had to set up global employees. At that time, people were outsourcing and setting up low-cost infrastructure in China and India. They were also hiring sales team around the globe. And I think it has to do with the launch of the telecommunications industry. You know, now people have to grab market share as fast as they can. If you have a great idea in America and you're going gangbusters in the US, you know, whether you're Uber or Google or anybody, you've got to go claim your market in China as fast as you can, or else you're just handing an idea to a country with a billion point five people. And that's because of the age of telecommunication, that ideas travel so quickly around the globe that if you have a good idea, you've got to go grab the market. I guess that's what helped y'all expand maybe. But I mean, as far as y'all getting all these clients, I mean, did you have a lot of competition? We did. Yeah. 
we were head to head with multiple companies. I'd say in the early days, not a lot of competition, but yes, there were competitors. Okay. So what led to your growth really was you think coming out of 9-11 and just like everyone trying to lower expenses and understanding that the opportunity to hire abroad? I think it was the opportunity to hire abroad and lower expenses, which I think has mixed results. I think you're better off to hire talent where you need it. Mm-hmm. And that was something that was learned in those early years. Outsourcing everything to India is actually not always very effective. But the other thing is the opportunity to sell into other countries. Most of our clients are hiring salespeople around the globe. And these are American technology companies that want to sell into other countries. So it's actually quite good for the American economy. Okay. That does make sense. Because in sales, if they have a local person, again, someone in Brazil trying to sell their product versus if I'm going to Brazil and I don't speak their native language, then that's an issue. A lot of your people today and clients, they're mainly looking to try to get salespeople in these other countries. Exactly. What year did you actually leave High Street Partners? And why don't you take us from there? Because I think we figured out what you learned at that time, but let's talk about the transition into starting your own company? I left in 2011. And again, we were about 200 people at that time. And I really loved the business and the company, but I also felt we had grown very, very quickly. And it's really hard to build a team, a consulting firm, which is basically hourly advisory rates in a scalable way. Like it's really hard to train people to be good advisors on how to do business in 60 countries or 150 countries or whatever we were doing at that time. That was a huge challenge. And I think it was hard for us to keep our clients happy. And then the other challenge was, is that I just thought I had a better business model, which was to set up one company in each country and give all our clients access to it. So I left in 2011. And when I did leave, I went and traveled for about a year. I had a non-compete agreement with High Street Partners that I waited out for a one-year period while traveling and doing research around the globe because I didn't know if we could make this business model of just giving all our clients access to one company in each country, if I could make that a legally sound means of doing business around the globe to meet the needs of Fortune 1000 clients. And ultimately, we have been able to do that. It's seven years later, and we have several hundred clients using our services and some of the biggest names that anybody would recognize. But yeah, so I left, traveled, and then when I came back one year and one day after my non-compete was up, launched the company website, and we started bringing in clients within a few months. Tell us what you learned. I mean, even if it wasn't business-wise, what you did for that year, it's a good way to use your non-compete if you have nothing to do. And it sounds like you saved up money from obviously what you were doing if you're able to take a year off and travel. Yeah. Just tell us where you ended up going and what you found out. Yeah. I had a fabulous time. I went to India first. That was really interesting. So my husband also left his job. He was working as a postdoctoral fellow at the University of California, San Diego, and also had a non-compete agreement and wanted to be an entrepreneur. So we did the absolutely crazy thing, which is we both quit our jobs at the same time, sold everything we owned and traveled for a year. I will add, that we also both set up companies upon our return to Boston. One year later, I moved to Boston and we're still happily married (laughs) because that's a lot of intensity to have two different companies. 32 or 33 at the time, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So what did you learn at these other things? Because I imagine you're kind of probably having business talks with some people around the way to make sure that this could work. Oh, absolutely. It was a novel concept. So I went to India first and basically traveled through the Philippines, China, all over Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Cambodia, really everywhere, all through Asia, and then subsequently went to Europe and Turkey. What did I learn? I think it was just, first of all, great to get some perspective from each country and talk to lawyers and tax advisors and things like that. It was a very novel concept at the time. 
I think now it's been tried and true and it's much more accepted from a market perspective. We actually just did a survey with CFO Magazine and it's like 89% of CFOs are, are thinking that they'll use a global employer record model in the next three years and seem to agree that this model is the best way to go. It was just really creating and building an industry, but had to do a lot of work to kind of push different licensing structures in different countries and see how we could make things fit and create a new industry where there was no legal precedent. To me, even when I was saying like, oh, that's how I would do it. Like I would set up a company and have multiple companies come in. I mean, were you ever worried that it sounded like easy enough that maybe you must be missing something? Because it seemed like someone else should have came up with this idea. Or I don't know if you had other competitors that were already doing that at the same time. I didn't have competitors that I knew of, but I know now that there were some. It does seem like an easy enough idea. I think that the problem, the challenge is in the execution, basically. Because, it is. Yeah. Right. Because it's really hard. I mean, we have more than 50 companies around the globe right now. And figuring out the international corporate tax, the collections, the benefits, the payroll, the licensing and legal issues underneath it, it's actually pretty intense. And a lot of lawyers that we speak to just think that we're completely insane. But I guess because my background and the background of my executive team comes out of this industry, we had a very strong foundation in international tax, international employment, and a lot of these international issues. So it wasn't as intimidating to us as it would be to most people. But I do think that you could set up the whole company and if you get something wrong, it would be a problem not only for the clients, but also for the company overall. It would seem if you just did one country, it might be, okay, this is kind of easy. Two countries, three countries. But then once you start doing that, like you're saying, if you're in 50 countries right now, I could see why lawyers kind of think you're crazy. Just like having to evaluate every country, right? Yeah. And making sure everything, you're the one actually taking on the risk, right? right. If it's going through your company, that's part of the reason they're using you. Exactly. So you're making sure to a T, making sure that everything is a-okay. Well, exactly. We do have competitors, but as far as I know, we're the only ones. And ultimately the thing is, is that if you don't get it right, if a client were to choose an employer of record who was not the right one, they're ultimately still on the hook. I mean, you can't just walk away from your liability. And we're, as far as I know, we're the only ones who actually indemnify our clients. Look, we'll get the HR laws right. We'll make sure your employees get paid. We take on the risk of this. Okay. And so there's the quality. And for me, that was something important in building this business. Going back to things I learned with my previous company, I really wanted to make sure our clients are happy. I knew the market opportunity would be huge, but I wanted to grow, but not grow so quickly that I wanted to build a scalable, long lasting business that our clients would appreciate and enjoy working with. I'm happy to say we've achieved that. We have 93% of our clients report being very happy with our services and 96% of the people that we employ on their behalf around the globe are happy with our services. For me, that plus having really high employee retention rates and like our team is very happy, our clients are happy and we have a super high growth company that's profitable. It's like the magic formula and that's what I'm proud of, not only having a high growth company. So why don't we talk about the fun part and starting year one, what exactly you ended up doing that very first time, how much money you had started off and when you moved to Boston and got everything going, why don't you just walk us through like the opening days of starting the first company? That's always scary, right? Plus I ended up spending a lot more than I expected traveling. It turns out my travel budget had increased a lot over the years. I wasn't a 20 year old backpacking around the globe anymore and 
day one is really always about setting up and launching a website, setting up bank accounts and getting your first clients in the door. I think it took about a year to say, hey, I think that this company is, I picked up a couple like types of engagements that I don't do now. So like consulting arrangements with some big companies that needed help with their international work on a consulting basis that kind of helped pay the bills while setting up the company. Whereas now we don't take those clients anymore, of course. It took about a year before I had enough clients and revenue coming in the door that I thought, okay, I think I need and maybe a year, year and a half that I thought, okay, it's time to start hiring people. This is definitely a business opportunity. And I think it took probably five years. There were definitely times when we were operating in the red, but the company had some cash flow. Like it was fine. It was fine, but it wasn't comfortable for a long time. So that first year and a half, so we're starting off January 2012. And how old are you? Just make sure we're on pace. I think 32 or 33. Okay. So for that first year and a half of Globalization Partners, it was actually called first off? Yes. Okay. And then you were the only one on the payroll for the first year and a half? Yeah. And I don't think I was paying myself. I made enough money to pay like bare minimum of my half of the bills, so to speak. And my husband worked, but it wasn't much. So definitely bootstrapped. Especially right in the beginning. I mean, did you think you'd have clients faster that you'd be able to get everything going? Because I can understand you're just doing quote unquote consulting for that first year and a half. Maybe you need a couple companies first interested in going into a certain country. So you need a couple of people ready to go before you actually start a company there too. Oh, totally. Totally. I think that for me, actually, there was a point when I just thought, you know what? I'm not making much money, but I'm making a little bit and I really want to give this a go. And I'm just going to let go of anxiety and trust that I feel like this is the right place that I'm supposed to be doing this and that this is going to work out in the end. And I'm really fortunate that it worked out that way. But I also got to a point where I just realized like mentally the overhead of worrying about whether it was going to work out wasn't helping me. So I thought if I have enough money to pay, you know, a little bit of rent and just be cautious, then this is worth investing in and this is what I want to do and I'm not going to worry about it. But at what point did you think that you'd actually start hiring? I mean, I didn't know if you had a vision or a business plan going into this thing, if you were on pace or again, we know where you're at today, but back then, right when you started, yeah. Were you getting disappointed you weren't moving fast enough? That's a good question. I think that there's a lot of scrambling. The American business mindset is a little bit smoke and mirrors, like in those early days for an entrepreneur. You know, you put up the website, you tell your clients you can do anything. I mean, for me, I don't want to sell stuff I can't deliver, but my clients did really like and enjoy the services. But when I got to the point of, okay, I need to hire people to help me, that was a little nerve wracking because then I'm asking somebody else to sign on to my dream and my risk level. And like the person I wanted to hire had kids and all of that. So it was like, okay, is this going to be financially stable enough that I can tell somebody that I care about who's putting her life on the line that she'll have a solid career with me? And I was just honest with her. I was like, I think so. You know, you're taking a risk, but I think this is going to go. And she said yes. And she came on board and the company always did continue to keep growing at a pace that I could hire people and keep up with the growth in those early days. Because I think that's what a lot of people right now listening and they're at that point. That's kind of how I was and have been with the podcast, right? It's just like you're putting in a lot of work and not sure if it's going to go the way you're going and you're hoping seems like you're on the right track, but then you want results as soon as you can get them. But Sometimes you just have to have the patience, I guess, to actually grow into it. Exactly. Yeah. What I describe it as is it's like jumping off a cliff and hoping you'll sprout wings. But at that point, I mean, I had already quit my job. But I think for me, something that was helpful when I did leave my job, there was something in me that thought, well, nobody will ever want to hire me again if I quit my job. But there was definitely... What I realized within a few months is that I started getting recruited a lot. Like it turned out that I realized later I could go get a job anytime. So 
what's the worst thing that could happen? And we actually did have, I would say there was a moment where I was like, wow, I don't know if we're going to make it. But what to me was really important was if we weren't going to make it, the company had in the long, long, long haul, the company had made enough money that I would be able to pay my employees while we wound down the company. To me, it was always really important to operate with my integrity and like know that the business was built on a strong enough foundation, even while I was in the experimental stage, that if the company went bankrupt, it was fine, but bankrupting everybody around me was not. <laughs> so it was like that balance of just being able, that is more terrifying to me. Have enough money for the people that you're going to hire. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of us could relate. Okay. If it's just me, I don't worry about it as much because I did it. I started the company. But if I start bringing on other people and then I don't have enough money to pay them, that's like something I would feel super yes. guilty about. You know? Yes. And there were times when we were operating in the red and it was like, I'm looking at the numbers and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to trust my intuition and this is going to be okay. But it was that fine balance between A, we need to hire more people to invest and build in the company. But on the other hand, holy shit, I hope I'm right because I'm gambling here a little bit, but I'm so confident and I believe so much. I think this is going to be good, but it was scary. There were a few months like that for sure. Yeah. I think almost everyone can relate because yeah, that you get to that point, you're like, I need to hire more people to help me get to it because I can see this is a good idea. But then do you have enough money right now? to actually make that higher. And then like you're saying is you want to expand as much as you can, why it's a good idea, especially now with the technology, other people could jump in on this opportunity if you don't invest in other people to help you grow it. Right. Tell us first year and a half before you kind of made that hire, what was your work life like? How often were you working and what mistakes did you actually make along the way too in those early years? Well, I had a friend who described it to me best one time and, and I still think back on this because it cracks me up a little bit. So he said that your first three years of being an entrepreneur, the first year you're like, terrified and you're like thinking, I don't know if this is going to work or not, but I'm just going to do everything I can to make it work. And you're working really hard. Year two is like, you're working really hard, but everything's starting to fall in, into place and you're making as much money as you need. And everything seems like it's going well. And your work-life balance is better than you've ever thought it could be because you're working for yourself. He said, and then year three, it's like you're drinking through a fire hose. You have more clients than you ever thought you'd need. And you're just scrambling to keep up. And he said, it never changes after that. And I thought that's been about accurate. Yeah, that's been the story of my entrepreneurship. Well, how about the work life? I mean, how much were you working now that you came back? I feel like I'd be fully recharged if you're out on leave for about a year traveling the world. I'd be kind of coming back excited to start my own company. Totally. Yeah. I mean, and to be honest with you, I think I was working while I was abroad too. I think right. it's my nature a little bit to work. And I think I get bored when I don't work. So <laughs> because I'm doing what I like. Right. Work-life balance. I'd say it was pretty good in those years because I liked what I was doing and I was building something and I was highly motivated. Since those first, let's say three years or so, I'd say, I think I work a lot, but I also really enjoy what I'm doing. And some months or quarters, it's like completely insane. And some months or quarters, it's reasonable and more relaxed. So I can't say I have a great work-life balance, but I can say I like the people I work with, <laughs> you know, and enjoy what I'm doing. So have you ever gotten burned out since you started this company? Have I gotten burned out? I've dealt with extremely high stress levels at different points. I think when we're hiring people now, we tell people we need people with the experience of running much larger companies, but who like startup companies, because there's a certain type of person who likes the chaos. They like building companies. They like growth. And we have 10% month on month growth right now. And for the last quite a long time, we're growing very quickly. And that's hard for people to keep up with. But I think if you're a 
creative business person, then you kind of like that. Yeah, I think, do they call them like intrapreneurs now? If you're like, quote unquote, entrepreneur, but kind of building within the business. I don't know if those are the types of people that you're kind of working with as far as they see the potential to grow into these other markets and they're, if y'all are working with them or not. I don't know if that's what you're describing there or not. I mean, I think, yeah, there's always space for people like that in a business. We all have that friend who's the first one to try things. Whether they're super trendy or more of a guinea pig, when you're making a choice, it's always nice to hear it from someone who's been there and done that. Choosing the right software for your business is no different. Read thousands of real software reviews to help you choose the right software for your business on captera.com millionaire. Captera is the leading free online resource to help you find the best software solution for your business. With over 850,000 reviews of products from real software users. Discover everything you need to make an informed decision. Search more than 700 categories of software. Everything from project management to CRMs to email marketing to yoga studio management software. Well, just basically any category you can think of, they have covered. I used Captera to check the top audio editing software and web conferencing software to make sure we're using the best products for editing and recording this podcast. So no matter what kind of software your business needs, Captera makes it easy to discover the right solution fast. Join the millions of people who use Captera each month to find the right tools for their business. Visit captera.com millionaire for free today to find the tools to make an informed software decision for your business. captera.com millionaire. Captera, that's C-A-P-T-E. R-R-A dot com slash millionaire. Captera, software selection simplified. Need a new logo for your current or future business? Well, BrandCrowd is an awesome logo maker tool that can help you make an amazing logo design online. If you're an entrepreneur, startup founder, innovator, thought leader, or basically anyone who owns a business, well, BrandCrowd is a fantastic and easy way to get a logo. BrandCrowd takes your business name and industry and generates thousands of logos in seconds. BrandCrowd uses high-quality, handcrafted designs created by designers from around the world to create custom logos just for you. Once BrandCrowd generates a logo you like, you can edit and tweak the logo, changing fonts and colors until it is perfect for you. One of the best things about BrandCrowd is it's free to get started and begin generating logos. Plus, it's super easy to use. Once you're happy with your logo, you can download all the files you need to start your business. If you don't like any of the designs, no problem. You don't have to pay. So to find out more about BrandCrowd, go check out braincrowd.com forward slash maker. That's B-R-A-N-D-C-R-O-W-D.com forward slash maker. Do you want to talk about the first hire or when you started actually maybe year two? That projection I've heard kind of time and time again, year one, year two, year three, not exactly as you said, but a lot of them is like, yeah, you're putting in money year one and you're in the red a lot. And mm-hmm. year two, hopefully you're breaking even and then like enough to take home that you're excited or not quite excited, but to pay the bills. And then year three is hopefully when at the point in time that you actually start seeing growth. So yeah, you said that's kind of your trajectory. So just why don't you walk us through year two, year three, how everything worked out? I will say year three, it was like 
we were seeing growth financially. That was exciting and gaining traction. But the thing is, is that different growth patches in the company. I think the hardest one is growing from about six or seven people to about 30 people. And in our case, we needed to do that in about six months. The reason that's so hard is when you have about six people on board, it's like everybody is their own department. So you have one person doing finance and accounting, one person doing all the client account management, one person doing all the sales work. But there's a point where you actually need a finance department and different levels of skills. And I think that going from a company that's supporting six people on the payroll, everybody's getting along really well and it's going well, but everybody's working their tails off to, oh, wow, we actually need to grow up and build as a company while we're drinking through a fire hose on our growth, kind of like stop, restructure, put software in place so that everybody knows who's doing what. So like for us, we were in Google Docs and working in an Excel spreadsheets and Dropbox when we were a six or seven person company because we were still kind of in the experimental stage. But there was definitely a point where it's like, oh my God, this company has potential. Okay, fine. We figured it out. We have the legal framework going. We need to further build out our infrastructure as well as our technology platform. And we need a ton of people on board to help. And we actually stopped taking new clients for a three-month period just to give ourselves a chance to breathe and put in the proper infrastructure underneath the business. So basically hiring people, training people, and putting proper software in place so that, you know, like workflow management. That was really scary because we were growing so quickly. We stopped growth and we were adding, you know, in this case, 25 people to the payroll. And financially, that's scary. In every way, that's quite nerve wracking. But we did it. It was the best thing we could have done for the business because if we would have just tried to keep sailing right through without putting that infrastructure in place, I don't know if we would have made it. Like sometimes you got to slow down to speed up. So can you tell us exactly like what software or what infrastructure you ended up changing? Because again, there's people listening right now who probably are figuring that out, that transition where you have to come up with that different ideas or different workflows than what you've been doing in the beginning. Okay. And I was always a believer in software and kind of investing ahead of the curve on that. Just to give you an example, we had a business partner in Europe one time. I asked them, why do you guys keep sending me all these documents to sign by PDF? Can I just sign this by DocuSign? Or why don't you guys put DocuSign in place so that you can just email all of your documents for signature? And they said, oh, no, we can't do that. It's $25 per user to put that software in place. And I thought, oh, good. These people will actually never be my competitor because they were actually positioned in a way that they could have become a competitor. But if you're not going to put basic technology in place and kind of level up, then you're never going to go big. Okay, so what type of software do we have in place? I mean, like most companies, we were probably using, I would just say that if you're in Google Mail and Google Docs or using Dropbox, those are good tools for, or like if your CRM is not Salesforce, anything else, let's say you're using MailChimp, those are great tools for small businesses. They are not great tools for a company with more than probably six employees. And so you got to stop at some point and say, and this is just my view. I'm not a technologist, but follow the market. If 90% of the world uses SharePoint and Microsoft Office products, you probably don't really need to evaluate that decision that carefully. It's the best in class for a reason. Just use it. Or similarly with CRM software, everybody uses Salesforce. I don't know why, but I don't need to dig in that deeply to know that like everybody uses Salesforce. Let's just use Salesforce. So I think sometimes saving a penny on something like that, like you're just crippling yourself down the road. Also not overanalyzing. I think that's what happens to everyone now because of the internet. Oh, I've got to look at 50 of the best brooms on Amazon and figure out which is the best room when I can just see what's the best room right there. Everyone said yeah. it. I can just buy it without spending an hour or two analyzing it. On a broader stream, if you're like doing it for business, you could spend a week evaluating or two weeks evaluating something. But 
if everyone's kind of using that, then that makes sense. It sounds like, yeah, you switched to Salesforce CRM. Was there anything else? Again, so these are tips for anyone who's listening and making that transition. Is there anything else major that you can think of that you had to switch from a six to seven person company to a 20 person? I just would recommend using Outlook, SharePoint, and things like that. Accounting software, like if you're a six or seven person company, it's fine if you're going to stay fewer than 10. Fine. Stay in Google Docs, stay in Dropbox. If you're going to have more than that number of employees, then you need workflow software. You need to know who's doing what. And I think the other thing is to stop and hit the pause button. If you're going to go big and build a multi-million dollar company, you probably need some senior level people on board. I think the biggest mistake I see people make is trying to do everything themselves and just hire really junior people. You got to stop and say, hey, you know, I need a COO or I need a VP of finance or somebody who actually knows how to put software and systems and infrastructure in place to grow this business. Well, did you have a light bulb moment when you made that switch or did you have advice for it? Because I know sometimes people make that switch because there's something slipping through the cracks in your business when you were actually going to make that transition. Like, why did you start making that transition with the software and technology before you actually finished up the hiring? Yeah, well, I got really lucky, which is my person who we had trained in QuickBooks was amazing, was pregnant and we knew her due date was coming. And so we had a kind of a mental timeline of, well, if she's the only person who's taking care of finance for us right now, we probably need to take her job and turn it into about three jobs. And so the mental timeline that we had in mind came around her delivery date that, okay, by that time, we need to have a senior person in finance, an accountant, and one other person to support and pick up her role. Can you tell us why you knew you had to grow that much? Did you just land a big client when you took your company from six people to 20 people? No, it was mostly the pace because I think we were growing so quickly that even when I had hired her, I remember telling her, I don't know if it's a full-time job right now, but when you get to 40, even close to 40 hours a week, tell me because that means I need to hire somebody else right away because we were just growing so quickly. I think one person can stretch to do 50 hours, but one person can't stretch to do 150 hours. You'll kill people. So it was just the pace of growth. Yeah. So why were you getting so much growth? Were you doing something in particular that was working well? I mean, were you out there hunting for new clients? Tell us about that. Again, if most people can solve this issue with having clients coming in the door, then they've solved most of their business issues because almost everything can be solved by the revenue. So tell us how you were able to get all these people wanting your services. We brought on somebody to do partner development and kind of put the word out in her network that had been in a previous industry and previous company with me to tell people what we were doing and kind of evangelize for the business. We also had a pretty good online presence. Our SEO at that point was quite strong and compelling and that people would find us by virtue of looking for, if they wanted to hire somebody in the UK, they'd be searching for information about how to employ people in another country. At that time, we were the only company who had a big database that people can access. So we had built that out. And I think people would come to our website because we got a lot of traffic through the website and that people are just saying, oh, I see online that you can help me hire somebody in the UK. And actually when they read the website, they were just like, oh my gosh, this is such a cool idea. It's almost hard to believe it could be this easy. And then after they signed on, they'd say, oh my God, I can't believe this was so easy. So it worked out well in both ways. So when they were finding it, did you have prices on there? Like how much were you charging a general client when they're coming on board, especially in the beginning? Yeah. I mean, that was tricky, right? I think our pricing has always been high, but that helped us be able to grow the business. The pricing behind the business had to be really carefully thought out because our clients are outsourcing their global legal platform to us. So it has to be right. So yeah, the contract includes like, what does it cost to hire somebody in this country? What's the social security cost on top of payroll? What are the benefits costs? And all of that had to be worked out in advance. 
How much in general? Just give me a number. Oh, sure. I would say it's usually about 15 to 20% on top of the total cost of employment in okay. their country. And when they're going to do that, do they usually employ several people in that country versus just one person? Again, I'll go back to Brazil. Yeah, it could be. It really depends on the client and what they're doing. It's usually just they're hiring a few salespeople in any one location, but they might be hiring multiple people in multiple locations. Were they just calling a number on your website? Because it seems like this is a B2B business, obviously. Would they just call you or call one of the salespeople and y'all would expand further on pricing and all that stuff? Yeah, exactly. Say if I called in the early days and I'm calling you, calling the number on there, was it going straight to your phone number? We used a voice calling service. We set it up to where a receptionist that picked up the phone for multiple companies, but she would pick up the phone with our business name and then she would patch it through to me or our salesperson or one of my colleagues. And then we would take the call from there. Well, let's pretend that I just called and again, it goes to your number. What are you saying when I'm saying, hey, I came across your website, thinking about hiring someone in a different country? What do you say? We'd say, sure, we can help you with that. And normally it's around asking the client, who did they find? Which country is it? And then just giving them the guidance of like, okay, here's everything you need to think about as we hire this person. And we can put this person on our payroll in that country, but here's the things you need to know. For example, if somebody wants to hire somebody in Brazil, all the employees are paid through a collective bargaining agreement. The person has to go into our office in Brazil and sign the paperwork in person and just this type of thing. So like how to negotiate, you know, the employee says they want a 13th month bonus. What does that mean? And it's just that type of nuance to help our clients really understand what it means to do business in that country. So normally we're helping them kind of understand what the negotiation process looks like with their employees. And once they agree on the terms with their employee, then basically it's easy for us to put the contracts in place on the back end to employ that person legally in Brazil. Are you referring them somewhere, another service for them to find their own employees? And did you ever think about adding that to your business? Yeah. So we have indeed introduced like a software that helps companies, like if they want to post a, a job position in another country. So let's say somebody wants to post a software engineer job in Brazil. Our HR team in country will post that job for them. The client will get candidates and a video of the person answering a few preliminary interview questions. So like, where do you work now? What type of job do you want? And I find that in combination with the resume, the video software really helps clients be able to see who they're talking with, like what's that person's energy level like or passion for the job and how do they describe themselves? And that kind of also, it streamlines the process for our clients to be able to find people in other countries. So yeah, we've experimented with it a little bit, but haven't gone to market with it in a big way. What's the most difficult country that you've dealt with as far as trying to deal with hiring and dealing with your services? I think probably Saudi Arabia is one of the hardest countries in the world in which to employ people right now. So the economy, I mean, it's really an interesting place to watch. And I think there will be a lot of changes in the coming years. But right now, the Saudi economy is primarily run by expatriates. So most of the people who are actually working and doing business in Saudi Arabia are expats. They come from all over the world and we have to sponsor their visas in order for them to be able to work in Saudi Arabia on behalf of our clients. The reason it's a really challenging place to do business is mostly because the laws change just constantly and they're not really well articulated. In fact, I think the country is mostly run on Sharia law. The legal infrastructure of the country isn't very well established yet. It's kind of evolving. And so that can be a little bit difficult to navigate. That said, our clients often need to hire people there. Not often, but it's one of our, I'd say top 30 countries. People need to hire people there because it is a pretty significant economy. So like oil producers might need to have a local person present in Saudi Arabia, for example. Yeah, I would say probably definitely, right? Yeah. <laughs> if you're in the yeah. oil industry, I think you'd want someone in that country. Do you have any other ones that are a little bit difficult? Because I want to ask 
some of the most difficult ones and some of the easiest ones to do business. Sure. Yeah, I don't think we get to hear this a lot. Oh, thanks. Your type of expertise in this, because again, we're coming more globally oriented. People who are listening to the podcast are all around the globe. Yeah. I just kind of find it interesting to find out which ones are most difficult and easiest to work in. One thing I will say is I think people are the same everywhere. You know, people are always lovely, but some of the legal nuances can just be a pain in the neck to deal with. Okay. Another really hard country, to be honest with you, is France. France is a lovely place to go on vacation. It can be a really hard place to employ people because it's very much a socialist country and like they get six weeks of vacation a year and the rights of employees are so renowned in France that the employees get so many benefits and so many perks and you have to follow the law so exactly. So it's just really challenging to get it all right. And I think that France is one of the hardest countries overall in which to be an employer of people. Is there any other one or two? And again, I understand it's not, oh, you don't want to visit these yeah. countries or they're difficult people. It's all because of the, the employment laws or, yeah. or legality all of it. issues, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. So another really hard country I would say is Brazil. The reason Brazil is so complicated is just because of the taxes in Brazil and the collective bargaining units. So that's like unions. Everybody's in a union and the labor laws are very complicated, very detailed. In fact, the tax jurisdiction is just crazy. So there's actually, I read an article in the New York Times a couple of years ago, and it was called the $30 cheese pizza. This article that the New York Times published about how what would be a $10 cheese pizza in America is about $30 by the time it's delivered because of all the taxes that get put on top of the pizza. And this article said that there's about 50 new tax laws that are published each day in Brazil at a state level, local level, and national level. So just like keeping track of all of that is incredibly difficult. It's a tough place to run a company. When we set up our own in-house Brazil company, I thought, wow, we're really doing something now. But what I like about it is that if I were a client, I would never want to have to run that company. I mean, I'd pay somebody else to do it all day long. Even with that, I mean, do you have a lot of lawyers in Brazil who are looking at that if they're coming up with that many, yeah. I guess, tax or legal things every day? Again, yeah, if you have to deal with that, that's a headache for you. But this is probably the number one reason people would want to use you exactly. if they're going to Brazil, right? Because it's such a headache. Yeah, we have an amazing legal team in-house comprised primarily of employment lawyers. And that team is kind of growing all the time as well. We also have local counsel in Brazil and local auditors and tax advisors. Besides the legal people, it's the tax and compliance piece and audit. Those countries, even though they're the hardest, they're probably where you add the most value to anyone coming. But how about some of the easiest ones to actually do business with? And what have you found? Yeah. So if you look at the list of easiest countries in the world in which to do business, which I think might be the UN or the World Bank publishes each year, it's pretty accurate. It's like the UK is pretty easy. Hong Kong, Singapore can be easy. Those are the, considered the easiest countries in the world in which to do business. And I'm winging it a little bit here. I will say that they're easy-ish. I think it's always easy to follow the law if you know what the law is and understand it. America is the easiest country in the world from an employment law perspective. So the US has the idea of at-will employment, which is that you can fire anyone anywhere at any time for any reason or no reason at all. That is an entirely American concept. As far as I know, it doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. Most countries have much stricter labor laws in place, so you can't just fire people for no reason at all, or you have to at least give 30 days notice in most countries. But what I like about the UK and Singapore is that the laws are clear and the governments post what the laws are online. You know, you can pretty easily, it's like, it's clear, it's stated, and it's readily accessible rather than like some countries, it's pretty mysterious what the law is, or it might be up to whoever's deciding that day. Do you employment in Venezuela? We do not. Yeah. We, yeah. We How about say, services there. That's a perfect example of the dictator and like who's the actual president and which law you're trying to figure out. I could see that obviously being an issue. Yeah. 
Do you have any quote unquote horror stories about dealing with any of this over the past couple of years? I guess there has to be some interesting stories that we could help remember this interview and thought would be kind of interesting as far as your employment around the yeah, world. Yeah, sure. So I'll go back many years and this goes back to my previous company, but I remember telling a client they were a small software company in Southern California and they wanted to hire somebody in France. And I told them, okay, you know, that's fine. We'll help you get it set up. But before, and this was my old company, so we had to help them set up. I mean, mm -hmm. the lucky thing is with my company as it is now, we are employing the people in all these countries. If a client says, I want to break the law, we just don't work with them. You know I mean? Right. It's like- Because you, you're in charge. Right. right. It's like, well, this is what we can do and this is what we can't do. <laughs> and frankly, we're just not going to do anything. So I think to some extent, that's what they're buying and signing up for. But in this case, I didn't have control. And the client said, look, we want to just register our US company for a payroll in France, which we didn't advise them to do, but that was their choice. Where they went really sideways is I said, look, you have to have a locally compliant employment contract in France, and it has to be in French. Or else, if you just give them your US employment contract and give it to a French employee in English, it's like you have no employment contract at all, and that's illegal. Anyway, so they had hired a very senior VP of sales in France, and it was an absolute nightmare. I don't think this guy ever showed up to work. I mean, he might have showed up for about three days, but within about three weeks, the client was calling and saying, I need to let this guy go. I mean, he was just a disaster. He was tough to work with, kind of bombastic, and it just wasn't going to work. Well, in the US, if following the US employment contract, if that was to work, they could just let him go and give him a little, you know, hey, we'll pay you to the end of the month and then you're off our payroll. But because he was in France and they didn't have a French employment contract, it it was kind of like, basically, they had to negotiate termination clause. It ended up costing them about six months payroll, which was a couple hundred thousand dollars for this employee and months, months of legal wrangling to just tie out all the details. So I think if you're going to hire somebody in another country, if it's a super small business, like, you know, you have a buddy who works in the UK and they're just picking up some contract work for you and you don't have anything to lose if you get sued, fine, do whatever you want. But if it's a company that is professionally managed, like you have investors or you think you ever might or or whatever, then getting it right is super important. And you have to follow the laws in whichever country you're hiring people. Just like you can't pay people under the table in the United States, you can't just wire salary to somebody in another country. So I think it's worth doing. You get the best talent in the world at your fingertips. It's an amazing opportunity, but get doing it right is incredibly important as well. So I guess that's my advice. Again, from that story, you can see why, how beneficial it is for you to actually own the company that's in each country because it's your choice on if you were going to do it, I guess, and you would have had the contract in French, right? And then yeah. everything would have been fine. Yeah, exactly. We could have just turned, I mean, given that it was a short employment situation, that person would have been on a probation period and we could have let them go relatively easily. Yeah. Yeah. But with the old company that you're in, it wasn't your choice because you didn't own, quote unquote, the company that was going to make that decision. Exactly. Yeah. We were just advising the client. Right. This is just an example, I guess, why someone would use your, you know, again, once you get to a certain revenue point, why working with you makes a lot of sense. Exactly. Well, the last few minutes here we have, can we just go over the growth, I guess, from year three to today? It sounds like you said from kind of six to 20 people was your main growth between first couple of years. Then tell us, I guess, the last four years or so. Oh, yeah. We've been growing every year. It's just been crazy. So we're about 115 people right now. And... We have about 40 open recs and we're trying to get to about 200 by the end of the year. So we've just been growing like crazy. And what's open rec? So we're on the same page. Oh, sorry. Open requisition. So it means like we're trying to hire that many people. Okay. I got you. We're trying to fill 40 seats right now and we're trying to grow and add another hundred people beyond our current 115 by the end of the year within a year. 
And I know you said at one point you were worried that you might have to close down the company or, you know, it might be future looking that you're like in the red. I mean, was that after year three? That was when we were growing from six people to the 30 that okay. it was like, okay, we either have to do this or not. That was like kind of the high risk time with the business because that was hard and scary, you know? Did you just had an inner feeling that this was going to work? Someone might have, be struggling with this. Like, do I make the hires or do I not? Do I keep it at the size that it is? And it seems like this was the game changer for your company. Yeah. I mean, we could have stopped taking clients indefinitely and kept a small business. You're right. We could have done that. I think that's not my nature. We could have just said, hey, we have enough clients. We're happy as we are. And we're going to keep doing this. And that probably would have been an option. Or if we wanted to grow, and I think it was a gut feeling, but it's also the market opportunity was huge. I mean, the gut intuition was based on the number of clients knocking down the door. It was just like, but clients knocking on the door does not necessarily mean dollars today. And certainly not the dollars today to, you know, 5X the size of your very small company overnight ahead of growth. At least if you had no one coming to your door, then you probably wouldn't have expanded it. it right, exactly. Like. Yeah, okay. it would have just stayed a small business. Well, how about personally? Because I don't think we really touched too much on that since you started growing your own company. What's been the hardest or most difficult thing you've had to deal with? So hopefully people can learn from that and maybe they're struggling with the same thing. I think like in the early days, it was a little challenging. I'm used to it now. I don't mind at all. But at first, it was just a little bit weird to be suddenly known on the scene in Boston as, oh, she's an entrepreneur. Oh, and to be on the cover of a lot of like we won a lot of awards quite suddenly and things like that. And suddenly you're always on and like I can be changing clothes in the gym and people come up to me and they're like, oh, hey, I heard about your company, which is great. And I love it. But it took a little bit of getting used to it first. And then the other things, I think it's always hard to make decisions in a vacuum. And I would say for your listeners, if your company's growing really quickly, you have to make decisions pretty quickly, but there's not always all the information you need to make the decisions to move the company forward. And so that's challenging too, because you'd like the time to say, okay, I really want to know what the forecast looks like before we decide if we're going to hire an additional person or do we want to take this client situation. But there's just not a lot of time to make every decision as carefully as you would like to. So I think the challenge is knowing which decisions need to be made right and carefully and well. I think the best thing that I ever did was hiring just an awesome C-suite way ahead of time. I hired really senior executives who could get in and roll up their sleeves and build the business early. That's probably what helped more than anything. So by C-suite, you mean like a CFO and these other yes. higher level business minds? What other quote unquote C-suite titles are there? We have a general counsel and a general counsel, given what we do, we really needed a lot of legal people in the door pretty right. quickly. And, and they're cheap. Yeah, exactly. I can't say they are. And then <laughs> uh, a CFO, COO, COO is awesome. And that's the person who helps scale the company. It's like the CEO's right hand person. So I would say, I know what needs to be done, but I can't necessarily get it all done. And she's really good at saying like, here's all the things. And if I say, okay, we're growing this fast, here's the plan and we need to hire all these people. She'll make sure everybody is getting their part of the job done. Sound like it all was pretty easy for you. Then. <laughs> I can't say it is. No, no, but it's been a good ride. Yeah. Personally, it sounds like everything's just kind of grown since you started. There was been no personal struggles as far as family life or missing friend events and like all that other stuff. Because I just want to paint the picture of how much work you actually probably have to put in to grow the company. Well, I think it's a tremendous amount of work. I will say I don't have kids and I'm also married to an entrepreneur. He's a fantastic entrepreneur of a high growth company. And so he's pretty busy himself. And I think that we've each had our ups and downs at moments, but it's useful for us to be able to talk about it together and I think understand what each other's going through. So it's not always easy, but I also 
feel like I think it's been relatively easy for me because yeah, you have to work really hard and be willing to roll up your sleeves and just kind of roll with the punches. But for me, I think I'm doing what I want to do and I love that. And so that's worth it. Is there any last tips or words of wisdom you want to leave with anyone who's listening or anything that you wish you kind of knew when you're starting off your company? Yeah. If I had to give any words of wisdom to a budding entrepreneur or somebody who wanted to be an entrepreneur, but wasn't sure yet, I would say, I think you have to listen to that internal voice that's telling you all along what you should be doing. And sometimes you just got to take a leap of faith and dive in and start doing it. And for me, it's been the most rewarding experience of my life. And if anyone wanted to contact you, Nicole, what's the best place for them to reach you to say thank you for doing the interview or maybe just reach out if you're trying to make 40 hires too, right? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I think the best way to reach out to me is probably through LinkedIn. It's Nicole M. Sahin on LinkedIn. And also people can reach us through our website, which is www.globalization-partners.com. Thank you for coming on and sharing your story. We really appreciate it, Nicole. Thanks so much. It was nice to speak with you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. After each episode, I ask our guests a few additional questions, such as, what's your favorite tool or program that makes your business more efficient? What business book have you learned the most from? And what's the biggest challenge still holding your company back? If you want the answers to these questions and other ones as well, then head over to our website, millionaire-interviews.com. You'll find the answers and much, much more at the bottom of each podcast episode. In other news, if you want to leave us feedback about the show, Give us a call or text us on our new hotline. Simply dial 1-305-985-3469. The best comments, questions, or feedback will be shared on a future episode. So don't be scared to get creative. 